I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. There's a hidden epidemic that's killing hundreds of thousands of people. It's called misdiagnosis. Why is it so common? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Our guest, Dr. David Newman-Toker, is one of the country's leading experts on this public health emergency. His recent study revealed nearly 800,000 people killed or disabled each year as a result of misdiagnosis. Why haven't public health authorities made reducing diagnostic errors a priority? Should there be a National Institute for Improving Diagnosis in Medicine? How can you reduce the chance that you or a loved one will suffer a misdiagnosis? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, uncovering the shocking dangers of misdiagnosis. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, a new highly mutated variant of SARS-CoV-2 is circulating internationally. Its scientific name is BA.2.86, but most people are calling it Pirola. If you've lost count of names, it's hardly surprising. The challenges of following technical nomenclature has led researchers to develop creative names such as Centaurus, Kraken, and Eris. But even those have proliferated so fast, it's been hard to keep up. Pirola, a name derived from the Greek letters pi and rho, has some scientists concerned because it has more than 30 mutations on its spike protein. Such a big change might make it more infectious or more difficult for our immune systems to detect. Fortunately, preliminary research suggests that people who are vaccinated or who had previous infections may be just as capable of responding to Pirola as to earlier variants. There isn't enough evidence yet to tell whether it may be more transmissible, but it doesn't appear to be causing more serious illness. However, public health experts are urging everyone to maintain their usual precautions against COVID-19. Stay home if you're sick. Wear an effective mask if you're inside with other people. Improve ventilation as much as possible. Take advantage of vaccination and wash your hands. Antidepressant medications offer relief to about half of those who take them in randomized controlled trials. In the real world, doctors often have to try two or three different medicines before the one they prescribe actually helps the patient. That's why psychiatrists may be excited about new research showing that a one-time treatment with psilocybin could offer lasting relief from the symptoms of major depression. The study included 104 individuals with major depression. In this randomized trial, half the participants got a single dose of psilocybin with psychological support. The other half got a dose of niacin, a B vitamin, with similar support. Neither the patients nor the investigators knew who took which substance. Somewhat surprisingly, People who had taken psilocybin reported feeling better about a week after the dose. Significant clinical improvement lasted throughout the six weeks of the study. Psilocybin is the hallucinogenic compound in magic mushrooms. The researchers conclude... 
These findings add to evidence that psilocybin, when administered with psychological support, may hold promise as a novel intervention for major depressive disorder. An accompanying editorial makes it clear that psilocybin is not appropriate for all depressed patients. In addition, there's a potential for adverse reactions, including migraines or panic attacks. This study reinforces the findings from previous trials, suggesting that psilocybin may offer benefit when antidepressants fail. A nasal spray called Narcan will now be available over-the-counter. Its active ingredient, naloxone, has been used by emergency medical personnel to reverse opioid overdoses. Administering a dose of Narcan nasal spray after calling 911 could save a life. Price may prove a problem, however. The two-dose package is $45, which might be too much for some folks who are at risk of overdose. Benzodiazepine-type medications have been extremely popular for decades to ease anxiety and help people get to sleep. Familiar brands include Valium, Librium, Xanax, Ativan, and Clonopin. A new study from the University of Colorado has identified long-term neurological complications associated with benzos and their discontinuation. The authors introduced the acronym BIND, BIND, which stands for Benzodiazepine-Induced Neurological Dysfunction. More than 1,200 respondents to an Internet survey reported their symptoms. More than half complained of low energy, memory loss, distractedness, nervousness, and other symptoms distinct from the problem that led to the original prescription. Some people suffering from BIND had stopped taking benzodiazepines more than a year earlier. The investigators conclude, our survey shows that for some benzodiazepine users, these symptoms are severe, life-altering, and not infrequent. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. Before you can be treated successfully for a medical condition, the health professional needs to determine what the problem actually is. That's harder than you might think. A recent study reveals that a horrifying number of patients are harmed by misdiagnosis each year. In fact, Incorrect diagnoses could be considered the third leading cause of death in the U.S. To learn more about the shocking dangers of misdiagnosis, we turn to Dr. David Newman-Toker. He's the director of the Division of Neurovisual and Vestibular Disorders in the Department of Neurology and Professor of Neurology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Newman-Toker is the director of the Johns Hopkins Armstrong Institute Center for Diagnostic Excellence, as well as the president of the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. David Newman-Toker. Uh, thanks very much, Joe and Terry. It's great to be here. Dr. Newman-Toker, in 1999, so more than two decades ago, there was a report to Error is Human, and they suggested that 44 to 98,000 people might die because of misdiagnosis. And it was a huge scandal, and people were up in arms, and everybody thought that's going to change 
Well, you have just issued a new report. Tell us about it and why things seem worse today than ever. Thanks very much, Joe. Uh, it's a great question. So certainly the Teres Human Report, which focused on all medical errors, was one that was a shock at the time. And the numbers, 44 to 98,000, seemed incredibly high. And uh, people wondered whether they should trust in the healthcare system, etc. Now, two decades on from that, we've learned a lot in patient safety. We've made some headway with healthcare-associated infections and medication errors and wrong site surgeries. But it really wasn't until 2015 when the Institute of Medicine issued another report, Improving Diagnosis in Healthcare, that we really started to see a sea change in people's focus on attention to this issue of diagnostic errors. It's something that uh, had been a little bit set to the side in the early phases of the patient safety movement. There were some concerns that perhaps it would undermine faith in physicians too much, and it wasn't clear what solutions there would be. So that wasn't the point of emphasis early on. But now we've started to realize that diagnostic errors really are the bottom of the iceberg of patient safety and quality. This is something that we are now uh, only just now starting to kind of begin to assess the magnitude of the problem. Well, of course, if you don't have an appropriate diagnosis, if you don't have the right diagnosis, you can't really offer the right treatment. Just how common are diagnostic errors? Well, diagnostic errors are fairly common. Uh, we know that there are probably about 5 to 10% of patients who are misdiagnosed on a regular basis in general healthcare settings. And the thing is that many diagnostic errors don't have adverse impacts on patients. So in this recent study that we conducted, we really focused on the thing that patients tell us they care about most, which is errors that cause permanent harm, whether that's permanent disability or death, or what we call serious misdiagnosis-related harms. And we found that approximately 800,000 Americans suffer serious misdiagnosis-related harms each year uh, in the United States. How did you measure that? So the math uh, that we use to, to do the work is relatively simple in its basic architecture. We looked at dangerous diseases and how common they are. We multiplied that by the risk of uh, an error occurring with those diseases or the diagnostic error rate. And then we further estimated the percentage of those errors that would result in serious harms as a result of diagnostic error. Well, I want to just hit the pause button for a minute, Dr. Newman-Toker, because the numbers are startling, breathtaking. I mean, you are basically suggesting that 800,000 people are harmed each year because of misdiagnosis. And the range is actually anywhere from about 600,000 to over 1 million people. And you're suggesting that over 370,000 people die, die each year because of a misdiagnosis. I mean, that makes it like the third leading cause of death in America. How is that possible? Um. Well, there are a couple of ways to, to look at that question, right? 
it's certainly the the numbers do seem breathtaking and unsettling. Uh, I would say that I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as uh, the third leading cause of death in the sense that most of the time when diagnostic errors occur and harm results, it's actually from the underlying disease rather than from something that we actively did to the patient in the process. There are occasional exceptions where we treat people inappropriately for a disease they didn't have and something goes wrong and and the death results from an, an act of commission, so to speak, where we actually intervened in a way that harmed the patient. Most of the time, this is what you might think of as a failure to rescue or a missed opportunity to save a patient. So I wouldn't necessarily call it the third leading cause of death, but it is significant that we estimated about 11% of all patients with a dangerous disease are misdiagnosed, and that of all patients with a dangerous disease, about 4% suffer some serious harms as a result. In many respects, you could say, well, those numbers are, are pretty good, right? You could look at the flip side and say, well, that means 96% of patients didn't suffer serious harms as a result of diagnostic error, and nearly 90% got the right diagnosis. And I think many people in medicine would view that as a win. But when you look at the total number of people affected, it starts to add up. We have a lot of people in this country. We have a lot of healthcare visits in this country, and we have a lot of patients who suffer significant diseases. And that means that there are significant opportunities for improvement that could substantially reduce overall patient harms. Well, you know what actually surprises me the most about your research is that Americans are, generally speaking, not very forgiving. What I mean by that is if you went to the bank teller and one out of 10 times you got the wrong amount of money when you got a check cashed, or, or let's just say you bought a new smartphone and one out of 10 of those smartphones that are sold is not working or, 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 or breaks immediately. I never, I never forgot the, the pilots who were on a, I think it was a Northwest Airlines flight from San Francisco to Minneapolis. And somehow they got distracted. We don't know why, but they, they went about an hour beyond where they were supposed to go, 150 miles. And then they turned around and they came back an hour late. Nobody died. Nobody was harmed. But it was a huge scandal, and I think they got fired, and, and people made jokes about them. And it was like, wait a minute, not a problem. Everybody, everybody got off the plane safely, but Americans were like, those idiots. And yet here you are suggesting that one out of 10 patients may be misdiagnosed. To me, that's like, wait a minute, we got to do something. Why aren't medical mistakes, misdiagnoses, and deaths listed as one of the common complications, along with cancer, heart disease, pulmonary problems, vascular issues. It seems like we, we just ignore these because this is not the first time. How many, how many times have we heard that misdiagnosis is a big problem in this country? Um. We have definitely heard it quite a bit uh, of late in the recent years. And I, I think this the analogy to the bottom of the iceberg of patient safety is really apt here. So the first is that these are things that are a little bit hidden, unlike other patient safety problems where you have a, 
kind of an obvious event. If you uh, say cut off the wrong leg uh, in a surgery, obviously a tragic should be a never event occurrence. Um, Everybody knows it by the time the surgery is over, that the the wrong leg has been removed. And that conceptually is a, um, makes it easy to detect how often those things are happening. With diagnostic errors, it's very different. You often only find out in retrospect and uh, there's often a delay or a lag that ranges from days to weeks to months and occasionally years before it's figured out. And it's often not the case, given our sort of fragmented healthcare system, that people even put two and two together, that there was a missed diagnosis or a missed opportunity that occurred earlier in the course of uh, the patient's event. They may not associate the two. They may just think, oh, well, they have a new problem, when in fact, they, they have an old problem that just has been misdiagnosed for some time. So connecting the dots between those initial symptoms and the final diagnosis are constraints that, that limit our ability to recognize when this occurs. And what we've seen is we, we dive five feet below the surface around this iceberg, and we measure the circumference of the base of the iceberg, and it seems huge. And then we dive five feet further, and it seems even bigger and five feet further, and all of a sudden it seems enormous. And we actually don't yet know just how big this problem is. Uh, my best guess as to how many diagnostic errors occur each year in the United States is somewhere between 50 and 100 million. And uh, again, with something on the order of magnitude of 800,000, give or take a couple hundred thousand uh, people suffering serious harms as a result, and probably at a cost of over $100 billion a year. So this certainly is something we should be paying attention to. And I think gradually, as more and more data come to be brought to bear, uh, policymakers and those in healthcare industry will progressively pay more attention to this problem. Uh, And I hope that our study will be part of the science that contributes to that greater attention to this uh, often neglected problem. You're listening to Dr. David Newman-Toker, professor of neurology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He's also director of the Johns Hopkins Armstrong Institute Center for Diagnostic Excellence and the president of the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine. After the break, we'll hear how a misdiagnosis of stroke affected the patient. What are some of the more subtle symptoms of a stroke? Diagnostic errors aren't usually listed as a cause of complications. Why not? If a patient thinks there's a problem, how can they get the doctor to pay attention? Do we need a National Institute for Diagnostic Errors? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible by Cocovia, backed by 20 years of scientific research. It's the maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, Coco Pro Cocoa Extract. Cocoa flavanols are among the most studied plant-based bioactives today and are clinically proven to promote cardiovascular and brain health for the long term, supporting a strong heart and better memory. Get 15% off your order of any Cocovia product by using the discount code PPOD. 15. Learn more at cocovia.com. That code again, PPOD15. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Cardio Health is offered in both convenient capsule and powder formats, with each serving containing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols to support heart health. More information at cocovia.com. Diagnostic errors are surprisingly common and account for as many as a million serious harms annually. A recent study found that more than 11% of diagnoses are incorrect. Imagine if you were seriously shortchanged on your paycheck one out of every 10 times. You'd be pretty upset, but such mistakes are not life-threatening. It's estimated that over 370,000 people die every year as a consequence of diagnostic mistakes. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, stroke is the fifth leading cause of death in America. It kills more than 160,000 people annually. Stroke diagnosis is harder than you might think. Some symptoms, like paralysis and trouble speaking, are obvious, but others, such as dizziness or headache, can be missed in a busy emergency department. To learn more about the shocking dangers of misdiagnoses, we're talking with Dr. David Newman-Toker. He's director of the Division of Neurovisual and Vestibular Disorders in the Department of Neurology at Johns Hopkins and professor of neurology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Newman-Toker is also the director of the Johns Hopkins Armstrong Institute Center for Diagnostic Excellence and the president of the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine. In the course of our conversation with Dr. Newman-Toker, we wanted to get his response to an email we've received regarding a serious diagnostic oversight. Joe, would you please read the email from Ralph? We found it pretty frightening. Count me among the survivors of a diagnostic mistake, if you will, but I call it simple laziness on the part of my former GP. For weeks, I was complaining of massive headaches accompanied by nausea and vertigo. My GP had me keep a daily record of my blood pressure for 30 days. No hurry, right? When he saw that my blood pressure was normal, he just shrugged and said, I don't know. Keep an eye on your blood pressure. Two weeks later, I almost died from a serious stroke which required eight months of rehab and cost me my career. Later, my cardiologist was livid with my former GP saying he should have referred me to a specialist. Dr. Newman-Toker, Ralph's story is something that you've probably heard of before. It's it's in your wheelhouse. It's neurological. How often are people like Ralph misdiagnosed when they're having a stroke that's a little atypical? Well, first, let me say sorry, Ralph, uh, on behalf of the medical care profession that, that this happened to you and that you suffered the, the harms associated with a misdiagnosis and um, lost your career as a result. It's a tragic story and one that unfortunately we hear altogether too often. 
Uh, this particular problem of stroke misdiagnosis is a significant one. It's one that we face on a regular basis. Uh, the estimate in our most recent uh, work suggests that there are nearly 100,000 people who suffer serious harms as a result of missed stroke each year in the United States. And the single biggest risk factor for missing a stroke is presenting with what we might call subtle or atypical symptoms, and dizziness is chief among them. So it turns out that we don't miss strokes very often when patients present with what we might think of as classic stroke symptoms, such as weakness on one side of the body and inability to talk. But we frequently miss them when they look like something else, uh, something more common, more benign, for example, such as inner ear diseases that cause dizziness and vertigo. And it turns out that strokes in the back part of the brain often present with symptoms only of dizziness and vertigo that look almost identical superficially to inner ear diseases. And it's not uncommon then for those strokes to be misidentified as something less serious than they really are. Why do you suppose the GP was asking Ralph just to keep track of his blood pressure? So I do believe that in general, there's a, a philosophy in general care settings, particularly primary care, of the idea of common things are common. And uh, when you hear hoofbeats, you should think of horses and not zebras. Uh, these kinds of aphorisms are, are reflective of the fact that you can't always in a primary care setting chase after every rare possible disease. So it's not uncommon for primary care providers to take the approach of saying, we're going to use a, a wait and see uh, or a careful, watchful approach to thinking about uh, underlying causes. High blood pressure is a common cause of symptoms in patients over a certain age, and it's not uncommon for primary care doctors to see some degree of neurologic symptomatology that they attribute to high blood pressure, and that can happen. But unfortunately, the problem with the wait and see common things or common approach is that it automatically sacrifices patients like Ralph. Um, and the reason why it does is as follows. There are certain diseases, these dangerous diseases that we've identified uh, in our manuscript as uh, the big three, vascular events, infections, and cancers, often can't wait. And by the time they declare themselves, it's already too late. And that's essentially what happened in Ralph's case. And our goal in these situations where we have a potential for a dangerous underlying disease that can't wait if it's there, is that we need to look for those kinds of diseases upfront. And I think that's probably what didn't happen here. Um, and uh, perhaps should have. Now, Dr. Newman-Toker, you've suggested that um, a physician is much more likely to miss the diagnosis of stroke if the symptoms are subtle. What are some of the subtle symptoms of stroke? Uh, subtle symptoms of stroke include uh, things that aren't uh, on you know, half the body, we think of the sort of obvious symptoms as being weakness on one side of the body or inability, numbness or tingling on one side of the body, sometimes a, an inability to speak. Those are things that come most readily to mind for most people and fall into some of the typical uh, algorithmic diagnostic protocols that are out there, uh, such as the, the FAST protocol, the face, arm, 
speech and time, a protocol for thinking about uh, rapidly activating stroke symptoms. Increasingly, people are realizing that balance problems, dizziness, headaches, uh, vision loss, uh, double vision are the kinds of things that are being missed. And we know that disproportionately, these are problems that happen in the back part of the brain. It turns out that classic stroke symptoms are the ones that happen when we lose blood supply to the main parts of our, what are called our cerebral hemispheres, the big part of the brain on top. Uh, and these more atypical symptoms are more the, the standard of what we expect when there's a lack of blood supply in the back part of the brain that controls balance and some other uh, vital functions and face um, and eye movements. And so it's, it's actually the subtlety of having vertigo or dizziness or headaches or nausea or vomiting or fainting that are the kinds of symptoms that often don't trigger the notion of stroke in people's minds. And so uh, people are much more likely to be passed off. Dr. Newman-Toker, you mentioned the three, the big three, uh, vascular and um, I believe infections and the third was cancer. cancer. So it seems to me that when you say vascular, people don't always know exactly what you mean. And I'd like you to drill down because you've just described stroke, which is vascular, but heart attack is something that people hear a lot about. So if you have the elephant sitting on your chest, you go, okay, I think I'm having a heart attack. The pain is radiating down my left arm. But women often don't have that kind of symptom. And so how do we get patients involved in this process and give them the support that they need to be able to tell whether it's their primary care provider, whether it's the emergency department, hey, I'm really worried. I think I'm having a heart attack or I think I have something called a DVD, a D DVT, a deep, deep vein, vein thrombosis or something called a PE, a pulmonary embolism, a blood clot in my lungs. So how do we activate patients and then help them convince the healthcare providers there's something serious going on? It's a great question. It's also a tough question. Uh, getting patients up to the point where essentially they can diagnose themselves or at least get through that initial first stage of figuring out, is this something serious or not, is a bit of a challenge. Now, there are some things that um, are kind of natural that patients do. We've, we've seen, for example, that arrival via ambulance or um, as opposed to walking in or even being driven into an emergency department is a risk factor for dangerous underlying diseases. And we believe that's because sometimes the, the severity of the initial clinical presentation or symptoms is such that that's your clue. And so people are aware enough that they need to call 911 because something really serious looking has happened. But getting people to be able to be comfortable recognizing the subtler manifestations of diseases, be they um, you know, vascular events such as stroke, heart attack, pulmonary embolus, aortic dissection, or otherwise, or infections such as sepsis, pneumonia, meningitis, <laughs> spinal abscess, etc. These are trickier distinctions to be able to make. And what we actually have to do is create better uh, public awareness campaigns 
and raise the kind of health literacy around diagnosis more broadly in the general public. For example, there are a lot of public service announcements about uh, heart attack and stroke, but they actually emphasize the more typical symptoms of patients with heart attack. And in fact, I think what we need to start doing is thinking about how we can emphasize some of these less typical symptoms. So I mentioned earlier the concept of fast or face, arm, speech, and time for stroke. People have started to use the acronym BFAST for balance, eyes, and then the FAST acronym to add these extra pieces that are often being missed these days. Dr. David Newman-Tucker, we had a pediatrician many, many years ago when our children were young, and he was wonderful. He said, you know, when a parent, especially a mother, is really worried, suspects that there is something wrong with her child, I pay attention. Mothers usually know when it's serious. How do we get some of your colleagues to be able to understand and appreciate that mantra that when an individual suspects that there's something really wrong, pay attention? So this is another great question, Joe, about uh, how we can get clinicians to appreciate the uh, input of patients more fully. Ultimately, this boils down to clinicians having a certain degree of humility about what they know and to recognize that patients are really the experts of their own body or of their family members, their children, etc. And we do hear this a lot in patients who've suffered diagnostic error is that the doctor wasn't listening. And that's a phrase that we want to try to eliminate from the lexicon. We hope that through the greater awareness about diagnostic errors, a greater recognition that that physicians don't always know the answer, that we can uh, convince clinicians to pay more attention to their patients. And I do think that you know patients, to some extent, have to figure out how they can also protect themselves in these situations. Well, one of the things that I would love to see is a National Institute of diagnostic errors or improving diagnostic errors or reducing diagnostic errors. And we have national institutes of fill in the blank, you know, pulmonary things. We have infectious diseases. We have all kinds of institutes that deal with a lot of health problems, but we don't have an institute of reducing diagnostic errors with a budget that amounts to hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars. And I guess I would love to see not just health professionals involved, because you talk about the four T's, teamwork, training, technology, and tuning, but what about the patients? How do we get patients and their families as part of that team? Well, I I think those are great. Let me just tackle the first one first, which is I would love to see a National Institute of Diagnostic Excellence. Um, and if you've got any friends in Congress who can help us with that, we would love to, to, to work on that together. There is obviously an organization in the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality that is focused on patient safety and increasingly uh, AHRQ, as it's known, is involved in improving diagnosis and working on 
achieving diagnostic excellence in clinical practice. But as you mentioned, uh, its budget is relatively limited compared to uh, the NIH. The budget of of AHRQ is in the few hundred millions. It's sort of a penny on the dollar for the 40 billion or so for NIH. And that's spread across all areas of patient safety. Diagnosis just one among many. We do need a significant investment of resources. Our best estimate is that the current resources applied to diagnostic uh, error-related research is about 20 or $30 million a year, which is a huge improvement over the $7 million that we measured back in 2016. But it still isn't as much as we spend on smallpox research at $39 million uh, a year, a disease that was eradicated half a century ago and kills zero people. Now, not to say that smallpox research isn't important, I'm sure, for biodefense and monkeypox and other things. There are valid reasons to want to do that research, not belittling smallpox, but it just gives you a sense of just how out of kilter the amount of resources we're devoting to this diagnostic error problem, which we've now shown uh, kills or permanently disables 800,000 Americans each year, that we're really way behind the eight ball in terms of getting to where we need to be in the long run, which is probably tens or hundreds of billions of dollars um, devoted to research in a sustained way over the course of several decades if we're really going to stamp this problem out. You're listening to Dr. David Newman-Toker. He is director of the Division of Neurovisual and Vestibular Disorders in the Department of Neurology at Johns Hopkins University. He's also professor of neurology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Newman-Toker is also the director of the Johns Hopkins Armstrong Institute Center for Diagnostic Excellence and the president of the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine. By the way, patients are also welcome to participate in the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine. You'll find a link in the show notes on our website. After the break, Dr. Newman-Toker will share what he's learned from his study. We'll find out how the research was conducted and how we need to think about diagnostic error as a result. How have his colleagues responded? Is misdiagnosis a public health emergency? Could we activate the healthcare system to react to the dangers of misdiagnosis just as it has learned to respond to heart attacks? How can patients help providers find the right diagnosis? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocoa Via Dietary Supplements. 
Cocovia Memory and Focus is a unique formula made with a blend of ingredients that work together to promote attention and support long-term memory. It supports five areas of brain performance, all in one capsule. More information at cocovia.com. Today we're focusing on diagnostic errors. Other types of medical mistakes have received a lot of attention ever since 1999 when the Institute of Medicine published its report, To Err is Human, Building a Safer Health System. As a result, physicians have worked hard to reduce things like wrong site surgeries, healthcare-acquired infections, and medication mix-ups. Diagnostic errors have not received the same degree of attention, however. Our guest has devoted a great deal of effort to exploring the extent and consequences of misdiagnoses. He and his colleagues have recently published the results of their research. They estimate that nearly 800,000 Americans suffer serious harm every year because they were diagnosed incorrectly. His team reports more than 370,000 deaths annually due to misdiagnosis. In addition, more than 400,000 people suffer permanent disabilities. This is not new news. Researchers have been warning about the serious consequences of misdiagnoses for many years. Why isn't there a National Institute for Improving Diagnosis? Shouldn't deaths from diagnostic mistakes be included on death certificates? and also in national health statistics? Most importantly, is there any way you can protect yourself and those you love from misdiagnosis? Our guest today is Dr. David Newman-Toker. He is arguably the country's leading expert on the problem with misdiagnosis. Dr. Newman-Toker is director of the Division of Neurovisual and Vestibular Disorders in the Department of Neurology at Johns Hopkins and professor of neurology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He also directs the Johns Hopkins Armstrong Institute Center for Diagnostic Excellence and is the president of the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine. Dr. Newman-Toker, I wonder if you would summarize for us again as a reminder what it was that you and your colleagues discovered, how you did it, what you found, what we should all take home about diagnostic error. Uh, Thanks, Terry. So in this study that we recently published in the BMJ Quality and Safety, we found that about 800,000 patients suffered serious misdiagnosis-related harms. That's permanent disability or death. And the way we came to that conclusion was based on uh, using a disease-based approach. Prior studies have looked at individual clinical settings, such as this is how many diagnostic errors occur in primary care, and this is how many in the emergency department, this many in the hospital. And those uh, sorts of studies are difficult to add up across settings because one patient might, in theory, be misdiagnosed in multiple places, uh, but it might all be the same case. So what we did was we took a disease-based approach and said, okay, look, what, what are all the dangerous diseases that are the usual suspects, among them vascular events, infections, and cancers that together are known from prior literature to account for about three-fourths of all the serious harms uh, associated with diagnostic error? And let's just look at the frequency of those diseases, multiply it by the frequency with which errors happen, and multiply that by the frequency with which harms happen, and then add all those up. 
for each individual disease and then across diseases, and then extrapolate to the total. So the math overall was fairly simple at, at its core, but we also did a lot of work behind the scenes to make sure that we were getting it right. For the diseases, we looked at U.S. data based on 23 million patients, uh, 21 and a half million or so from the national inpatient sample, one and a half million from the cancer registry for the disease diagnostic error rates. We looked at 47 different studies representing about a million patients, most of those in the U.S. And for the harms, we looked at five well-respected studies, over 1,200 patients, and about four of them uh, were from the United States. And then when we rolled up the total, we actually validated it multiple ways. We looked at the impact of our various assumptions on the final results. We looked at cross-validating by triangulating data from other independent sources. And in the end, we essentially used nine different techniques to be able to assess both the reliability and the accuracy of our data. And ultimately, we felt it was, we were convinced that the science was robust and legitimate. And that's why we went ahead and and published the, the material. So the figures that you came up with are shocking, actually. How have your colleagues responded? I would say that in general, the response has been positive. Um, There are always in these situations uh, people who uh, doubt or debate the veracity of various scientific findings. And and we acknowledge in the manuscript that the data upon which we base these results are themselves imperfect, right? And in a perfect world, what we would have is a, a system of accounting in healthcare where we measured the accuracy of our diagnoses and the outcomes from those diagnoses, where we could actually simply go to the, the centralized national database and figure out how many people had been misdiagnosed and how many had been harmed and how many were potentially preventable. Unfortunately, those kinds of data sets don't exist. And so we brought together different pieces of data from different sources to try to answer a, an important public health question. And we believe that overall, these are the best numbers that can be generated at the moment, but we acknowledge that future research may ultimately clarify these as, uh, you know, too high, too low. Um, But at least for now, we think that these are pretty valid. So, Dr. David Newman-Toker, should your research suggest that this is a public health emergency? And it should be all hands on deck? I think the answer is yes. Uh, To me, this is a public health crisis. I think whether you use the term emergency or not, I think is a question of uh, how you look at the the big picture in healthcare. Uh, If, as we saw in the recent pandemic with COVID, there were hundreds of thousands of people who died, uh, that was a public health emergency. It was a crisis. Now, it happened quickly and acutely and with a single disease entity. And that, of course, brought everybody's attention to bear. But this is more of a, rather than an epidemic, kind of an endemic problem, a chronic, low-level, under-the-radar screen problem that we've been living with for decades. And I do think that we should treat it like a public health crisis because uh, otherwise we're not going to make the kind of headway we need to make. I think it's really important um, for your listeners to understand a couple of key things about our findings that that relate to this issue of of whether this problem is soluble. So 
The first is that we found that just 15 diseases accounted for half of all the serious harms. So there are 10,000 plus diseases in healthcare and they can all be misdiagnosed, but only 15 of them account for half of the problem of serious harms from diagnostic error. That already makes this problem very tractable compared to the alternative of having to solve every single diagnostic error problem. Even within that, the top five diseases that we found, top among them stroke, but also including pulmonary embolus and sepsis, pneumonia, and lung cancer, those diseases together accounted for almost 40% of the problem. So even more tractable, potentially, for us to bring solutions to bear. And I think the place to look is actually uh, at our successes with heart attack. Now, it's true that we still miss heart attacks, and they still make the top of the list uh, in question. They, they were one of the top five vascular events causing serious harms in our study. But if you actually look at the rate at which we miss heart attacks, it's remarkably low. We miss them at a rate of about one and a half percent and harms result less than one percent of the time. That's a remarkable achievement, but it didn't happen out of thin air. It happened with decades of sustained, serious commitment of research dollars, clinical resources to try to prevent misdiagnosis of heart attack, the development of the EKG, the development of blood assays, including troponin assays and enhanced troponin assays to try to get to the point where we could easily diagnose these patients. But not just that, the presence of chest pain protocols and care pathways and quality measures to make sure that we were rapidly identifying and immediately treating patients with heart attack, all of those things brought to bear against this one problem of solving the issue of diagnosing chest pain appropriately in patients, diagnosing heart attack in patients with chest pain was a concerted, multidisciplinary effort. And I believe that we are going to have to apply that kind of effort to solve some of these other critical disease problems that are misdiagnosed at rates anywhere from 10% to 60% of the time, but are just as dangerous and just as problematic as heart attack. Now, you've mentioned that really it's a handful, essentially, of diseases that account for most of the misdiagnoses that result in harm. Is it feasible? Will the healthcare system actually respond to these conditions like sepsis, like uh, pneumonia, I think you said, um, in the same way that they responded to heart attack? Well, I hope the answer to that is yes, uh, or else we're still going to be having this conversation again in a few years. Um, the I do believe that the healthcare system can and ultimately will respond to this challenge. Um, we're now getting to the point where in the diagnostic excellence field uh, that everyone is pretty clear that we have a big public health problem on our hands. The magnitude of the problem is less the question now. And the question is, how can we implement effective solutions to prevent it? And I do believe that as solutions are popping up left and right for various diseases, and uh, you know we've done a lot of work on the issue of stroke, but others have been working on other diseases, whether it's cancer, or appendicitis, or sepsis, or otherwise, I think that as those uh, interventions become 
more available and more commonplace, we will start to see benefits. Dr. Newman-Toker, one of your colleagues, Dr. Eric Topol, is a big fan of artificial intelligence. Is there a day that we can all imagine when patients can go to a website utilizing artificial intelligence to self-diagnose and be part of the team so that when they get to their doctor's office, 85% of the work on diagnosis has already been accomplished? I think the short answer to that is yes, but I think the debate is about how soon that day will come. And um, in my view, the long-term future of artificial intelligence is bright, and the short-term future, maybe not so much. My big worry is not about the technology itself, but the sources of data upon which we train these artificial intelligence systems. Right now, we still have the garbage in, garbage out problem that we're dealing with. No matter what data we train the systems with, they're being trained on existing information. So if our current error rate is 10% uh, and the systems work extremely well, we'll make a 10 or 15% error rate in going forward. We are not really interested in artificial intelligence that performs as well as we do or almost as well as we do now. Perhaps that would be useful for um, people in low-resource countries, in low-income countries uh, in sub-Saharan Africa who have no access to any healthcare. But in America, um, if we want to see artificial intelligence help patients, it's going to have to outperform our current practice. And to do that, we're actually going to have to build much better data sources first and then apply the techniques of machine learning and artificial intelligence So that's what our group is doing, and I think many others are working towards better data sources, better characterized, so that we can then train effective and accurate artificial intelligence systems to help patients get the care that they deserve. Dr. Newman-Toker, in conclusion, what should patients keep in mind as they need to approach the healthcare system for a diagnosis? I always tell patients, uh, you should do three things. Come prepared, ask good questions, and stay vigilant. Come prepared means synthesizing your symptoms in advance of an encounter with the healthcare system. Just a simple bulleted timeline of events of the problems that you've had can actually transform a brief healthcare encounter from one where the doctor's spending all their time gathering information about you and not enough of their time thinking about your problem and its causes. During that encounter, you need to ask tough questions. And the specific question you need to ask is, what is the worst thing this could be and why is it not that? If you don't get a straight answer to that question or if the doctor seems to bristle or give you a hard time, find another provider. You need a second opinion. And finally, after you leave the encounter, stay vigilant. And the reason why you have to stay vigilant is because sometimes in today's healthcare system, people get a medication to treat their symptoms or whatever. There's a particular diagnosis they've been given. And then a few days later or a week later, they're not better. And they assume that the problem is the medication's not working, the treatment's not working. And they call up their provider and say, hey, the pill's not working. Can I have a higher dose or a different medicine? And that's what they get, a higher dose or a different medicine. What the patients need to know is it could be not that you have the wrong treatment, but that you have the right treatment for the wrong disease. And you have to bring that back up to your healthcare provider because they're busy and you've got to protect yourself. So instead, when you call up, say, uh, 
hey, this is, I'm not getting better. Do I have the right diagnosis? I think the combination of those three things, coming prepared, asking good questions, and staying vigilant will help patients protect themselves from uh, this problem while we operate our systems of care to stamp it out over the course of time. Dr. David Newman-Toker, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Dr. David Newman-Toker, Director of the Division of Neurovisual and Vestibular Disorders in the Department of Neurology at Johns Hopkins and Professor of Neurology in the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Newman-Toker is also the director of the Johns Hopkins Armstrong Institute Center for Diagnostic Excellence and the president of the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine. The Society welcomes patient participation as well. You'll find a link to it in the show notes, along with a link to Dr. Newman-Toker's research. And here are some questions to ask your health care provider the next time you're faced with a challenging medical problem. Doctor, Could you please summarize my primary concerns and symptoms? This question will allow you to make sure you've been heard and understood. Are there any symptoms or findings that don't fit your diagnosis? What else could it be? And how would you rule that out? What further tests might be helpful? When can I expect my test results? Can you facilitate a second opinion? Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Cardio Health is offered in both convenient capsule and powder formats, with each serving containing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols to support heart health. More information at cocovia.com. Today's show is number 1,355. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments about today's interview. Have you experienced a misdiagnosis? We're very interested in your story. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you could sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. When you subscribe, you also have regular access to information about our weekly podcast so you can find out ahead of time what topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. 
Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.